I can, uh, I can remember the first test that I ever took as a college student, nearly 17 years ago. Prof was Dr. Bowen. It was a core social studies class called Contemporary World. And uh, I remember it because I bombed this test. And I bombed it despite the fact that the prof had been abundantly clear with us about what exactly was going to be on the test, how much we would need to study. He gave us a list of the essay questions. And I just didn't do it. It was like this scenario where I had this clear path in front of me of like, if you just do this one thing, there's no ambiguity around this situation. The only ambiguity is, are you going to do it? Or are you not going to do it? And I didn't do it. And you realize how rare that kind of situation is in our lives, where like the path is clear. We don't have to figure it out. The only question is, are you going to do it or not? I've got a friend named Matt. Uh, Matt's a man who does not, he does not miss out on situations of clarity. I learned this because I went to Culver's Home of the Butter Burger with Matt. <laughs> and Matt, um, Matt is like the Culver's guru. So he knows that at the top of every Culver's receipt is a survey that you can call in. Well, it's a number. You call in, take a survey. It's about three minutes. They give you a code. You take it up to the counter, and then they give you free ice cream. Now, Matt's in his mid-30s. Matt's been going to Culver's for about 20 years, and so I crunched the numbers. <laughs> and if we can assume that Matt goes to Culver's twice a week, conservative. <laughs> and if we can assume that Matt makes, uh, gets to like a $2 value with every time, Matt has consumed over $4,000 in free ice cream from Culver's. I, on the other hand, stand before you as a failure this morning. I never take the surveys. Like, I never save room in my meal. At the end of the meal, I'm not hungry for ice cream. I'm just full. I, I forget it. I've missed out on thousands of dollars a free ice cream. The path to make my life better is clear. <laughs> All I have to do is take that survey, but I fail to act every time. But that's kind of funny. I'm joking around with that. But uh, sometimes, sometimes there's a clear path for us to take, and the stakes are actually a lot higher, right? Let me give you an example. Imagine you went to your doctor. And your doctor tells you that he's going to start you on a new medication because, like, some of your numbers are off. Maybe your blood pressure is a little high. Maybe your cholesterol is high. Maybe it's your blood sugar. And he kind of explains to you that these numbers being high, right now, there's, there's, there's no problem if you treat it. But if it, if it stays untreated for a long, long time, then you're going to actually incur some irreversible damage to your body. But the good news is, if you just take this medication that he's giving you, it'll probably regulate this thing that's off. If you take it, it regulates, there's no irreversible damage. If you don't take it, you walk on down the road, and at some point, you have a condition that medicine can't actually reverse. All you have to do is take the medication. There's no ambiguity in this situation. Taking it is clearly better for you. But the medication isn't going to do you any good if you simply know that the medication exists, right? The medication isn't going to do you any good if you go to the pharmacy and pick it up, but you leave it in your cabinet in the bathroom, just unopened and untaken. It's not going to do any good unless you actually take action. Well, in our scripture reading today, James wants us to recognize that when it comes to faith in God, we're in one of those situations of clarity that requires action. God promises us something that's better than free ice cream. It's better than a good test grade on a freshman-level test. It's even better than the most effective medication. James describes God's promise to us 
in verse 21. He calls it the word that is planted in you. He says, accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Just to let you know, the Greek there actually says, which is able to save your souls. So first glance, it may not be super clear what James is talking about when he says the word, but it's actually super clear what the stakes are. This word is able to save your souls. Let me give you just a little more context on this word before we dive more deeply into the passage. Um, James mentions here the implanted word. He's actually kind of laid the groundwork for what this word is in the verses that precede our passage today. Our passage starts in verse 19. But just prior to the start of our passage, James has kind of laid out two different tracks. And he sort of does it with the, with the imagery of two different seeds that can get planted. And the first seed that he describes getting planted is when it's a seed where temptation has twisted our appetites. And that seed gets planted. And what grows up is a plant that he calls sin. And this plant called sin produces fruit. And he says the fruit of that is death. But he describes another seed. He says that this seed gets planted. And this seed he calls the word of truth. And when this word of truth gets planted, it creates a plant that grows up and the fruit of it is us leading the lives that God has intended us to lead. It's us living our lives to the fullest. Now this word of truth that God plants in us, this word that's able to save our souls is the gospel. And I mean gospel in a holistic sense. It's the good news of all that Jesus did in becoming a man. It's in his teachings and in his miracles. It's in his defeat of death and sin through the cross and resurrection. And it's in his sending of the Holy Spirit. The good news of all of this is the word James talks about. And James says this word is implanted in us by God. And it's able to save our souls. And he teaches that receiving this word moves us into action. It moves us into this situation where all we have to do is act. In fact, we have to act if we receive this word. It's not optional. Religion, it's just all talk and no act is worthless, James says. He says that in verse 26. It's pointless. So I want us to look today at this call to action because James teaches that a mark of true faith is to take action, to take faithful action. So let's take a look at the scripture printed in your bulletins. It's the the James scripture. What page is that on? Page eight and nine in your bulletins. Thanks, Father A. And to start off in this scripture, what James does is he gives us us some examples of pointless religion. And I think they're instructive for us because I think we have a natural inclination to some of the same things that he points out here. So listen to these examples and see if you can identify with any of the things he's talking about, because I know I can the, uh, the first example of pointless religion, uh, this, by the way, is point number one in your sermon, if you are the note-taking type. Point number one is religion without faithful action is pointless. So the first example of pointless religion is when we hear the word, we, we hear the truth, we hear the gospel, and we don't act on it, but even though it doesn't move us into action or it doesn't really change us at all, we kind of trick ourselves into thinking that just hearing it, was enough. Look at verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. 
do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So imagine this scenario. You're, you're getting ready to go out and you look in the mirror and when you look in the mirror, you see that you are a total wreck. But instead of doing anything to fix it, you just put the mirror down and it's almost like you just check it off your list. Like, okay, looked in the mirror, check. As if that made any sense at all, right? It seems silly that you wouldn't fix it, but that's, James is saying that's exactly what we do if all we do is hear the word. And note this, he's not saying that we reject the word of God in this. Maybe we actually genuinely enjoy hearing the gospel. I mean, the gospel is good news. It's news about how God has triumphed over sin in our lives, over over weakness. God has triumphed by raising up the destitute. God has called us to good things. That's good news. You know, sometimes we actually even enjoy some of the harder news. Like we kind of sit through a sermon and we have this moment of conviction where Father Aaron, he tells us something. and We feel that moment of conviction and it's, it's almost cathartic. It's almost like, ooh, I felt that. I, I, I like that. But then that feeling right there is enough for us. We don't follow through. We just like that we kind of got a little bit of a little bit of a stab there. We felt alive and then we move on. Does that ever happen to you guys? That happens to me. James is saying, don't be forgetful like that. There's a step beyond just hearing. So being forgetful is one way that we can slip into pointless religion. But James mentions another way that we slip into pointless religion. And it's where we, it's where we, we hear the gospel and we internalize it on some level, but we still don't act on it. In this case, the gospel, Christianity, uh, facts about Jesus, whatever they are, They become kind of a belief that we hold in our minds, but it doesn't change our lives. James is going to very generously call this kind of belief faith, but he's very clear that it's dead faith because it's not alive in us. It's not producing any active effects. Look with me at the scripture again. Chapter 2, that's on the second page there. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if somebody claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So if someone is freezing or starving without food, Sending them good vibes isn't good enough. It's not going to save their life. They need a coat. They need food. And James is implying here that spiritually speaking, we are the freezing and starving ones. We are the ones that need saving. Remember what he said? We need the word from God that's able to save our souls. We need a living faith that brings us to life and brings us to action. The other kind of faith, the faith that, that may just be in our brains, but it doesn't change us. That's just the equivalent of like spiritual good vibes when what we're starving for is real spiritual food from God. Faith that doesn't change your life, doesn't save your soul. Now this truth can hit hard. And it hits me in a couple of ways. Um, The first place it hits me 
It's when I find myself disconnecting the prayers that I pray on Sunday from the rest of my week. And I just, I want to step back and I want to be clear here that I'm not actually disparaging you from going through the motions on Sunday, okay? I think, I think sometimes going through the motion gets, going through the motions gets kind of a bad rap, actually. Because um, some of us here might actually be in a place where we're struggling with faith. And so going through the motions is sort of God's gift to you to pull you back towards him. That's grace. That's, that's beautiful. See, God is calling you into relationship with him, and the motions of worship are meant to teach you how to live out your faith when you're struggling. They help change your life, and they strengthen true faith. The question is, do I live like I believe the prayers that I pray on Sunday? Am I letting the Sunday motions teach me to live and think and pray during the rest of the week? That's a question that kind of hits me. That's, I think that's James' point. Another way that this truth about faith needing to change your life hits me is when I find myself studying and reading and gaining knowledge about God, about Christianity, about theology, but I find that I'm not actually increasing in charity towards brothers and sisters, towards my neighbor. Um, perhaps, perhaps this specific application is for any Bible students and seminarians among us, of whom I count myself one. Is knowledge creating faithful, loving action in our lives? St. Teresa of Avila observed that you can know whether or not you've really spent time in God's presence. That is, all these things that we do to try to know God, like the, the study and the learning. You can know if they've really put you in God's presence by observing, has it increased your love of your neighbor? Studying scripture, studying the early church, church fathers, theology, liturgy, systematic theology, these things are wonderful. But does the head knowledge become an active, living faith? That's what James is warning us against in verse 19 of our passage. He says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. The first part of this verse where he says, you believe that there is one God, James is actually referencing a scripture in the Old Testament called the Shema. And you can think of that as kind of, it's the creed of the Old Testament. He goes, you know the creed of the Old Testament. You know scripture, good. Good job. The demons know that. It doesn't matter at all if it doesn't change your life. Are we growing in the love of God and the love of our neighbor? James warns us away from pointless religion. And instead, he points us towards true religion, towards a living faith. So this is the second point of the sermon. The mark of true faith is faithful action. He gives us a few examples this passage of active, living faith. Look at verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Orphans and widows. In the ancient world, Widows had a good chance of being destitute because society was entirely structured around 
a husband, around a father, being sort of the resource point for a family unit. So widows had lost kind of their connection to resources. And other people have noted this. I simply repeat it, that in our society, the people who don't have access to resources that are a lot like widows are single mothers in our society. And our orphans are children who bounce around in the foster care system. James is pointing to the weakest parts of their society and of our society. And he says that true faith takes loving action to care for the weakest. Now, what James offers here is an example. Not every single one of us is going to be called into ministry for single moms and for, to, to take in foster children. James offers other examples here. He offers Abraham and Rahab as examples from the Old Testament. And both of them faced a completely unique call to faithful action. So the call that God puts in your life might be unique. It's not universal, this description. What James says is universal is the fact that faith universally must produce faithful action. Now, as we talk about the connection between faith and action, I just want to pause and clarify something. James is speaking here to people who call themselves Christians. James is speaking here to people who go to church week in, week out. He's not actually saying that you have to work hard and form a lot of good habits and really reform your life before you can know God, before you can have faith in God. He's saying that truly knowing God, truly knowing the gospel, having faith changes the way you live. It creates this faithful activity in your life. Because there, there may be some people here today who would say, honestly, I'm not so much like an all-in Christian as I am like an interested listener. And if that's you, I want you to hear that coming to know Jesus produces a living and active faith that will change your life in ways that you cannot do on your own. Receiving the truth about who Jesus is comes first. And the life change follows. But there's another thing I want to clarify, and it's this. Maybe you consider yourself one of those Christians. But to be honest, you are tired. You've heard for so long how you're supposed to be better. And perhaps you even found this church, this sacramental tradition, because you were tired. Maybe you're not only tired, maybe you're also fed up. You're fed up with the rules that other Christians are constantly measuring you by. And just to add one more, maybe you're tired, you're fed up, and you're like me. You feel like a bit of a failure pretty often when it comes to taking faithful action. Let me tell you about how I feel like a failure. Um, I have this job. I'm a nurse in a pretty busy emergency room. And it's a job where I'm often in contact with people who are having the worst day of their lives. Or I'm in contact with people who are having a fairly typical day in the middle of a very bad life. And I'm in contact with a lot of stuff in between those two points. And many times, I've begun my day with a prayer asking God to give me the grace to love not just the nice patients, but to also love the patients that verbally abuse me 
to love the patients that are really ungrateful, the patients that are manipulative, condescending when I try to help. Because I, I want the love of God to fill my heart so fully that it just overflows, that I'm able to love my enemy. Because that's what God our Father has done for us. It says he loves even the ungrateful. But I can tell you that I have never made it through an entire day of work without a hateful thought against someone. And I think if there's just one thing I could change about my entire time working as a nurse, it would be this thing. So I'm not sure where you are today. Are you an interested listener? Are you a tired and grieved Christian? I want you to know there's some really good news for us in this passage. And I think we see this good news most clearly in verse 25 of chapter 1. And this brings us to the last point of our sermon. Point number three is that God empowers faithful action and sets us free. Let's read, uh, it'll be back on that first page for the scripture. Let's read that paragraph that starts in verse 22 again. We'll read it all the way through verse 25. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now listen to verse 25. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing, they will be blessed in what they do. So James just to, to scan through this passage again so we see what's going on. James has been talking about the word of God for several verses. And then he changes his terminology and he speaks about the perfect law that gives freedom. Why that shift? Well, James is still talking about the gospel when he says the perfect law that gives freedom. He's talking about the good news of everything that Jesus said and did when he became a man. But James calls it the perfect law that gives freedom because he wants to remind us exactly what Jesus has done for us. See, law and freedom are two things that don't usually go together. In fact, sometimes it feels like law is the exact opposite of freedom. Law puts restrictions on what I'm able to do, and doesn't that actually lessen the amount of freedom that I have? But Jesus actually brought law and freedom. And he brought them together. He came teaching the laws of God. You, you know many of them by heart. Laws like love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Laws that describe the ultimate reality, such as blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Laws that lift up the downtrodden. Laws that give us life. Laws that transform us into who God intends us to be, our true selves. Living by these laws is actually a part of the way that God gives freedom because when you're living the way God intends you to be, when you're living your true self, you suddenly become free to do things that you couldn't do before. Namely, you're able to love in a way that you couldn't do before. You're able to love your family. You're able to love your neighbor. You're able to love your enemy. But Jesus brought freedom actually in yet another way, even a, a surpassing way. Because there are times when we still fall short. 
when we still fail to love others, we fail to show the mark of true faith, which is faithful action. We fail to do the word of God, not just hear it. And when we fail like that, we become susceptible to the fruit of that other seed. Do you remember that other seed that grows up? That seed of death? Because sin just rots our lives and rots our relationships. And God knew this. Before Jesus came, before you were born, God already knew this. And so when Jesus came, he brought not only law, he brought not only his moral commands, but he also came and he brought mercy for us. He sets us free from death. By taking our death, all the death that is growing and that is born fruit in our lives, he took that death into his own death on the cross. And he defeated all death in his resurrection from the grave when he rose from the grave. And just as he took all of our death onto himself, so he takes all of his life and he gives it to us and he frees us eternally from death. And so he joins law and freedom, moral teaching and freedom from sin and death into one. And this James calls the perfect law that gives freedom. And James says, whoever looks into the perfect law will be blessed in what they do. That word blessed, it's the word that's used to describe someone who's in the divinely blessed state in the kingdom of God that is still to come in front of us. Whoever looks into this perfect law will enjoy the fullness of the kingdom of God that is to come. And that phrase, looks intently into. It's actually a Greek word that's used to describe the kind of looking that you might have done as a kid whenever you ran up to your friend's door and you knocked on the door. And before they even had a chance to answer the door, you leaned over and you looked into the window. And like the window's kind of dark, it's kind of hard to see, but you're just looking as intently as you can to see if somebody's coming. It's the word that the New Testament uses in the Gospels to describe the way that the disciples leaned in to try to look at the empty grave to see had Jesus really risen from the dead. They looked intently into it, and I think that is the perfect picture here. James says if you want to not just hear the word, but if you want to have the kind of faith that brings you to life, if you want to do the word, then look intently into the law of freedom. Look intently into the empty tomb. Look intently into the resurrection. Meditate upon it. Continue, he says, continue upon that meditation. Spend time in your day over and over again, considering the gift God has given you in the resurrection of Jesus. Look intently into the law of freedom, for in looking upon the gospel, God gives us freedom from guilt of failure. And God gives the power to live the life that he intends us to live according to his law. He gives the power to endure in faithful action. The power to not just hear the word that's able to save our souls, but to live it out. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.